Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 14 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. A couple of announcements. First one is that this is the first time since I launched this podcast in late late June that I didn't release a new podcast within about a week. And as some of you who follow my posts on social media or subscribe to my email list already know, I came down with a cold virus and I haven't had the voice to record nor the vigor to get my thoughts organized. But The downtime gave me time to do some much-needed podcast chores and take a mindful breath in reevaluating the goals for this podcast, which include ideas for community building and new ways to help you apply some of the tips and tricks we talk about on the podcast. You know, a good thing about having a cold or some other minor debilitating illness is that you slow down despite yourself. The other good thing is that your entrenched daily habits of productivity have to be put aside. Both the slowing down and being forced to release the clinging to shoulds and the need to do is a wonderful enforced spiritual practice. I have admitted before in earlier podcast episodes that, you know, I tend to be an accomplishment-driven person and, well, just plain driven sometimes, accomplishment or not. And, you know, the podcast adventure I began thinking about in May and building in June triggered a flare-up of this behavior and, of course, it was great. I love preparing, producing, and promoting this podcast. It's absolutely aligned with everything I've ever done in my life. And the best part is that it is for the good, right? It's to help. It is a communication of a helping message in this, you know, current world that seems adrift and lost, spinning around constantly about what's wrong with everyone and what's wrong with everything. But I've been so driven, I haven't heeded warnings to take a break, to check in with myself, to see if I'm okay, to see if my actions are still in line for this podcast effort. You know, the cold made me do that. And after slowing down and resting some, I noticed that the adrenaline was still running strong. I was still driven by the impulses to do. A thought would pop up and I immediately felt the need to act on it. I had such a death grip on reaching the most people as quickly as possible with this podcast that the thought of missing a week or two, as is now the case, in producing and distributing an episode was horrifying to me until it happened. So it will be nearly three weeks since I released an episode. And guess what? The world is still spinning. I still have plenty of podcast energy and motivation. People are still downloading and listening to my episodes, subscribing to my mailing list, and following me on social media. So, you still love me, right? But the best part is, as I mentioned earlier, is that I had the time and mental space to think about what would be best for you, the listeners. And I kept coming back to the fact that, yeah, I have to keep creating content that speaks to your lives, but I also have to find ways to connect each of us, to connect each other together, to build a community, provide maybe a place to share these practices and daily methods that we try to apply in the tips and tricks I talk about on this podcast. And so that to that end, I will continue to expand the blog section of my website. I'm also creating a YouTube channel to share some of the motivational videos I've recently created and shared on social media. And I've started a Patreon page to help me continue putting more time into these efforts through your support, of course. For that support, you would receive membership to a private discussion group 
access to bonus short and longer form podcast episodes, bonus blog content, access to Dharma to Go membership for an escalated response to quick questions or issues that an everyday Buddhism approach could help. Your question would be featured on an Ask Me Anything episode and the possibility of some spiritual friendship coaching services. All these benefits would be available based on your level of support. So I humbly ask you to check it out at www.patreon.com slash forward slash everyday Buddhism. That's www.patreon.com slash everyday Buddhism. I've continued to keep my donation page on my website too, in case you would like to support my work through donations directly from my website. And of course, this podcast does remain completely free and it will continue to be completely free and I will continue to respond to your emails and messages as quickly as possible if I can. But with your support, I can create more content, I can connect more, and I can offer more practices and motivation. And if there is anything you'd like to see that would help you in your everyday journey, please reach out and let me know. And don't forget to join my mailing list to keep posted on any new announcements or new podcast releases. So thank you for hearing me out in this uh, mini episode of what I did while I had a cold. But now I'm going to move on to the subject of this podcast, and I think it might be long. That's maybe the trouble of hanging on for two and a half weeks. Uh, I got too much stuff spinning in my mind. But anyway, the subject of this podcast I'm excited to announce is the first, very first, Ask Me Anything episode in response to an excellent listener question. The question today comes from Vicki Lopez, who wrote saying that she loves my podcast and blogs and then asked this question, quote, my question is around activism. I have participated in several marches over the last few years to protest our current administration. The teachers I have been studying with don't necessarily encourage protest. And while I understand their position, I wondered what your thoughts were on this. I conduct myself peacefully and try to stay away from name-calling or arguing with others for the sake of arguing. Whatever insight you could provide would be most appreciated. Thank you again for your work, unquote. And thank you, Vicki, for being a loyal podcast listener and a blog reader. I appreciate both of that. Um, so my initial response to the gist of Vicky's question around whether I would encourage or discourage protests is like my answer from episode four, what does Buddhism say about? Remember what that answer was? Maybe. Seriously though, I will continue to circle around this topic with a back and forth kind of volley of thoughts dug directly from my own experience. Not necessarily my experience with protesting, but experience with being a vocally visible resistor to the current administration or past experiences I have had in reacting to um, what I considered to be injustice or, or societal abuse and so forth. But the short answer still remains absolutely maybe, or it depends. You know, as I talked about in episode four, this is one of those questions that falls under the category of impossible to answer. There can never be an actual yes or no answer should Buddhists protest or not, right? They're all different types of Buddhists and different interpretations of the teachings and different prescriptions for behavior and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there can't be a single definitive, quote, Buddhist, unquote, answer to this question. I know, Vicki, that really wasn't your question. Your question was more about my take on it. Okay, first a little background from my experience with this question, or my experience with activism, protesting, resisting. 
From what I can tell from membership and relationships with Buddhist sanghas and centers in the United States, protest is typically not sponsored or officially supported by Buddhist centers. Now that is not to say that some sangha members don't wish otherwise. I remember a time probably about, oh, I don't know, I think it's probably about 15 years ago or so when I was a member of a local Tibetan Buddhist sangha. And I remember listening to a particularly heated discussion during a membership meeting about whether the center should officially protest. To be honest, I don't even remember what the something was for sure that we were talking about protesting, but I think based on the time frame that I'm thinking about, it probably was the first Gulf War and the invasion of Iraq. Now, many of the pro-protesters, the people who were for protesting as a center, were making passionate cases for the fact that many other churches and church groups in the local area were speaking up, speaking out, But here we were as Buddhists, we weren't speaking. And those against formally protesting were making points about our practice being spiritual and not worldly and about changing ourselves to be peaceful so that eventually the world would be. So it went back and forth like this with some heated exchanges for quite some time. And eventually the subject was closed and the voted decision was as a center, we would not protest. Now, I imagine those sort of discussions play out frequently in Buddhist centers and sanghas all across the country. A memory I take from that day, though, is my own strong reaction to the thought that the center would actually officially protest. I started thinking there would be like sign-up sheets for protest locations and shifts to protest. And I remember feeling a very visceral distaste for possibly being in the position to say, no, I won't protest. No, I won't support the center's activities. But you know, I've gone back and forth in my thoughts and instincts about protesting since that time 15 years ago. Looking even back farther over my lifetime, I've had many opportunities to join protest, starting when I was in high school during the Vietnam War, the protests at Kent State University, and the eventual killing of four Kent State students and the wounding of nine. I was a junior in high school at that time, and I had planned to attend a protest with an older guy I was secretly dating. I say secretly because my family didn't like him because he wore an upside-down flag sewn on the back pocket of his jeans. In other words, on his butt. And so we had sort of planned to uh, attend one of those protests, um, in the following week, which would have been the week after the shootings at Kent State. And each time we had planned to attend, we actually attend, we planned to attend one more during the weekend before that. But each time we planned to attend, you know, we were stopped by the violence that was happening. The first on the weekend prior to the shootings, following a major Friday demonstration and then the Friday night violence and fires, And then we were going to go to a a demonstration midweek, but the shootings happened on Monday, May 4th, 1970. I stayed away from protests since that time, including protests for gay rights, which directly affected me as a gay person. I'm not sure why exactly, but I remember hearing or reading something about your behavior as an individual interacting with another individual does more to change a person's mind than yelling at him. And that stuck with me. And whenever I could reasonably and comfortably come out to someone as a gay person, if there was no physical or financial risk to me, I would. In other words, if it was safe, somewhat. Even during the 1970s and 1980s when it was not accepted nor necessarily smart to put yourself out there. You know, I was by no means brave or highly visible, but I wasn't hidden either. If an opportunity presented itself for me to tell someone I was gay, I always took it. And it always seemed like it was one way of helping to make a difference by possibly changing one other person's mind. Yet at the same time, I realize I personally owe a lot 
to those who did protest and those who worked hard for gay rights in activist causes at the risk of their own personal safety and financial security because they were able to change a cultural attitude that ended up providing the same rights for me and my partner as everyone else. And it happened in my lifetime, which is something I never thought possible. You know, I cried when New York State passed the same-sex marriage laws. And I cried again when the United States Supreme Court did the same thing. Yet I know I didn't personally contribute to that happening as much who put themselves on the line. Yes, I supported efforts with letters and calls to representatives, contributed to organizations and candidates, but never ended up in the street with a sign. You know, I've never been comfortable protesting protesting, or joining group efforts and calling something out. I don't know. Maybe it's being chicken. Maybe it's a lack of bravery. Actually, I don't think it's that. I can be very outspoken and I have not been afraid or hesitant to challenge someone's behavior when I thought it was appropriate. So maybe it's the group thing. The thing That's the thing that doesn't work for me or didn't work for me. I'm not sure I could pinpoint any one thing that stopped me in the past from joining those sort of movements. But what I have since learned from studying and practicing Buddhism, meditation, and self-reflection seems more at the core of why I felt and feel the way I do. It is about sensing the raw power of anger or even frustration that can be unleashed through groups. Whatever frustration, anger, or rage that an individual feels is inflamed and intensified by the energy of a group. Plus, you know, I've always been sensitive to the psychological phenomena of groupthink, even in the sense of not being a part of a protest. You know, groupthink, that wave of group decision-making that pushes consensus at the expense of critical evaluation or independent thinking. You know, the tendency to suppress critical thinking or alternatives through an isolation of pulling away from others. And, you know, in social media, it tends to happen by staying in echo chambers that create the sense of being the only truth or being right or being invulnerable and the sometimes unthinking and unfeeling response to those in the out-group, the others. The sensitivity I experience when exposed to groupthink is an actual fear. A fear of this negative potential in me. The negative potential that is common to human behavior. It initiates an urge to sort of run away and hide because the raw realness seems very threatening to me. You know, Master Shantideva expresses the need to protect the mind throughout the book, The Way of the Bodhisattva. And that's sort of my impulse, the, the, the shielding my own mind from that sort of raw, visceral anger. I'll share some of the sections that speak to me from his book. In the fifth chapter on vigilant introspection, In the 17th to the 20th verse, he says, All those who fail to understand the secret of the mind, the greatest of all things, although they wish for joy and sorrow's end, will wander to no purpose uselessly. Therefore, I will take in hand and well protect this mind of mine, What use to me are many disciplines if I can't guard and discipline my mind? When in wild, unruly crowds, I'm careful and attentive of my wounds. Likewise, when in evil company, this wound, my mind, I'll constantly protect. For if I carefully protect my wounds because I fear the pain of minor injuries, why should I not? protect the wound that is my mind, unquote. And then in the verses 47 through 50, again in the fifth chapter on vigilant introspection, he says, and when you feel the wish to move about or even to express yourself in speech, first 
examine what is in your mind, for steadfast ones should act correctly. When the urge arises in your mind to feelings of desire or angry hate, do not act, be silent, do not speak, and like a log of wood, be sure to stay. And when your mind is wild or filled with mockery, or filled with pride and haughty arrogance, or when you would expose another's secret guilt to bring up old dissensions or to act deceitfully, or when you want to fish for praise or criticize and spoil another na- another's name, or use harsh language sparring for a fight, it's then that like a log you should remain. You know, I can hear some of the reactions to what I'm saying now or what I'm quoting from Shantideva. Like if you're not part of the resistance, then you're part of the problem. And you know, I agree with that. But again, the most important part of any action is checking first to see what is in your mind. You know, it it goes back to that right action discussion we had. Is it reaction or is it thoughtful action? The question is, what's in your mind? And until you know what's in your mind, maybe like a log, you should remain. I've been tossed and turned by this dilemma too. I will share how I've thought about it by sharing two different Dharma talks. We call them Dharma glimpses in the Bright Dawn Center of Oneness Buddhism. One was the one I gave in January 2017, and one was another reflection, sort of a, a post-analysis, if you will, of, that I did in a talk in July of 2017. So I'm just going to share the first one, and I'm going to read it as if it was happening right then in January 2017. It's titled, New Year 2017, A Bodhisattva Response. I approached this new year of 2017 with a mix of fear, anger, blame, sadness, confusion, and hope. I am filled with more tension about what is to come in 2017 than I've been at any other new year time in my adult memory due to what I, like so many, perceive to be disastrous election results this past November. Yet at the same time, I am more committed to positive change. You know, not changes like exercising more or losing weight, which both would be helpful to me, but big changes in thinking, perspective, and dedicated involvement in hopes of being a positive force for good. You know, in the face of expected major challenges to human rights and Mother Earth from what the recently elected what the recently elected intend to do, I am committed to a more wholehearted involvement as a bodhisattva. You know, David Brazier Sensei in his teachings on the Lotus Sutra talks about how a bodhisattva is established in enlightened vision as one who, quote, stands against the current of the river unquote, and who, quote, recognizes what is true and establishes establishes herself in that in a call to change, unquote. You know, no matter how difficult the reality of our situation and no matter the anguish we feel over what is happening, it's what's happening. As Thanissara, a teacher I was reintroduced to through One Earth Sangha Echo Sattva program writes, Quote, none of this is outside the Dharma, unquote. And as Reverend Koyokobose teaches from the Japanese expression of Shigate Ganai, quote, it happened. We can't do anything about it, so we must accept it, unquote. You know, this is exactly what the Buddha taught in the First Noble Truth, the truth that things happen we don't like, the truth that things change from good to bad, no matter what we have or have not done to cause them. This is the first thing the Buddha taught. And it is noble because there is bravery in facing this truth head on. You know, back to David Brazier's teaching, he explains that bodhisattvas draw strength from Buddhas and that Buddhas are whatever 
it is that enlighten us or cause a moment of wisdom. A Buddha can be anything that helps us understand the truth of things, which could be things in your life falling apart. In other words, suffering or the dukkha. David Brazier taught that dukkha is a Buddha. How about that? The very suffering or discontent that we feel is a Buddha coming into our life. The Buddha in the dukkha, the Buddha in the suffering, I and so many felt after this election, challenges us to a change of view, a change of perspective, and a change of heart. Having the strength of Buddhas behind us, we are called on to see behind and beyond our self-centered view, beyond blame, beyond denial, beyond anger, beyond separation, called on to see with the vision of a bodhisattva. You know, with the Buddhas supporting us, we are now working for the Buddhas in the service of others, willing to be of service, to be useful, to do what's needed, and to be conspicuous about it, facing the truth of our circumstances head on. But what can we do, we cry. What can we do about this? It's overwhelming. It's too much. It's not possible to change anything because the system is corrupt, we scream. And I'm going to interject something from my January 2017 Dharma uh, glimpse here to say it's even worse now, right? But back to my Dharma talk. Yet in the Lotus Sutra, there is a focus on 80,000 bodhisattvas who were nothing special. They weren't monks. They weren't nuns. They weren't ordained. They weren't bodhisattvas and Buddhas in the way that we know them. But he, the Lotus Sutra refers to them as bodhisattvas. But they were lay people, just like us. These lay people, these bodhisattvas, are praised more than the monks and nuns in the writing of this sutra. This speaks to a dynamic in the early Buddhist movement, a dynamic that is also at the heart of what I teach in Everyday Buddhism and what the Bright Dawn Center teaches in its lay ministry program. David Brazier Sensei explained that these lay bodhisattvas are praised because they will be the ones that actually spread the message of the Dharma by being in the world and trying to do some good rather than retreating from the world trying to do some good. I like that. You know, that's something I can do. It's something I and all of you probably try to do every day. Some good. So when we're hit with this level of suffering, remember that suffering itself is a Buddha guiding you, supporting you, energizing you, and then try to do some good. The first good thing you can do is to fully feel the suffering you feel and the suffering of those around you. Then use the Dharma to move beyond fear, move beyond the anger and blame and create a path for leading others to that same place beyond the hurt. It's that understanding and motivation, according to Thanissara, that can, quote, move Dharma practice beyond a personal introversion and quietism, to an active acceptance that can indeed transcend our suffering over challenging circumstances, unquote. How that looks in my life is, as I said in my opening, was first shock, then a mix of fear, then anger, then blame, then sadness and confusion, and only recently some hope. I have stayed too long in the anger and blame phases, sometimes moving through sadness and confusion, but only returning back to the anger and blame. But what helped me move a bit beyond anger and blame and empowered me in a new bodhisattva dedication was an understanding that I hadn't let myself fully feel the suffering. So I couldn't move to accept it. I saw that although the acceptance is transcendence teaching that helped me find a sense of peace so many times before, this time it was very different. Everything felt different. This time I felt a stronger need to do something because the situation seemed so impossible. 
Yet thinking about how I quote unquote supposedly had accepted and transcended things in the past, but now I couldn't, pointed out to me that the way I thought I was accepting things before was a very weak way. It was a way of resignation or avoidance, a getting rid of, a pushing away, rather than a strong warrior acceptance of the pain and angst. You know, I was trying to quickly move on, to get beyond it, get over it, saying I had accepted or transcended. I wasn't taking the warrior approach of facing it head on. I was dodging and weaving. I wasn't looking the challenge in the eye so that I could see what I could do. I couldn't consider any possibilities and ways of dealing with this new reality. I couldn't look for and find what's best because although I claimed I was accepting through transcendence, I mean, I was transcending through acceptance, I was still focusing on how awful everything was. I saw that when I had accepted previous challenges in my life, many times I had been spiritually bypassing, quote unquote. That's a phrase that I've heard before. It's kind of like saying, yep, I sat with this or I meditated on this. I'm okay now. I'm beyond it. Spiritually bypassing is avoiding shock. It's avoiding fear. It's avoiding the sadness in life. It's rushing to a so-called quote-unquote insight without feeling it interconnected to your own personal difficulties and negative emotions. It's a disassociated state of acceptance rather than a truly embodied or integrated act of active acceptance. You know, that disassociated state tends to happen because it is hard to be with fear. It is hard to be with anger. It's hard to be with blame and sadness. Hard to be with the personal stories and feelings. Hard to sit in that I don't know mind for any length of time. Hard to commit to a skillful dance of not knowing and at the same time action in the Dharma before action in the world. I had heard this term spiritual bypassing before, like I said, and when it was mentioned in the final session of the One Earth Sangha's Echo Sattva program that I was uh, participating in late 2016, it prompted me to look at my behavior. And luckily, I had also been participating in uh, teaching a class in the Bright Dawn Lay Minister uh, class LM9 um, since October 2016 at the time of the election. I say luckily because I had to focus on things I could do that were helpful. And I had to focus on the Dharma as a part of these commitments. I was escorted by my previous commitments to this dance of not knowing yet action in the Dharma. You know, when systems and groups disappoint or frustrate us, you know, when family and friends express thoughts and feelings that cause disillusionment, disillusionment or feelings of loss and anger, when seemingly dependable external circumstances suddenly become unstable or unpredictable, there really is only one refuge, and that's the truth of the Dharma. It's the truth of everyday Buddhism. Everyday Buddhism is firmly anchored in the Dharma, and the Dharma is firmly anchored in its first teaching teaching of suffering or disillusionment, dissatisfaction. And if you remember that suffering is a Buddha, it can awaken you to a new level of understanding and a new level of commitment. If you allow it to fill you up completely, from the introduction to her book, Time to Stand Up and Engage Buddhist Manifesto for Our Earth, Thanissara writes, quote, Andrew, Andrew Harvey asks us to, quote, follow our heartbreak. That is, scan your conscience for the issue that keeps you awake at night. Then get up in the morning with the intention of doing something to mend that one broken thing, unquote from Harvey, continued quote for Thanissara. This is a good place to start our journey, a journey already modeled by the Buddha. At the end of the day, the essence of the Buddha's message is, you can do this. Together, not alone, we can bend the course of history, unquote. So I ended my uh, Dharma talk in 
2017, I said, what does this have to do with the new year? I wrote, I think we all too often look to the new year as sort of a new world, a heaven, a pure land, that beautiful magic, magical place of jeweled trees and no suffering, which is opposite of the suffering world we live in now, opposite of the year we left behind. Yet, as Titnot Han writes in The Pure Land is Now or Never, the pure land and our world of suffering are one. That's like suffering being a Buddha. In the smaller Pure Land Sutra, the Buddha sees human suffering, but also sees how we try to run from it. Yet it is our suffering that enables us to see happiness. To be happy, we must learn how to negotiate suffering. We must remember that understanding and compassion only grows on the ground of suffering. To think that there is a place somewhere out there of no suffering is pure illusion. To think that the new year will be like the pure land is an illusion. But to understand and integrate our suffering in a dedication to doing some good is to establish the pure land here and now. The pure land is in our mind. It is in having a new perspective. It is in seeing the jeweled trees and the skeleton branches of winter. So that was the end of my 2017 New Year's January message. And the biggest takeaway I get from this talk and rereading it and in sharing it with you is the hope of knowing that with introspection and not reaction, I am able to see where I can do some good. It feels to me that the true noble resistance, the noble eightfold path, is to look for ways by looking in our own mind, look for ways by not reacting, and then we do some good. Okay, that was my wise thought on January 2017, right? But I came back with a new Dharma talk on the end of July 2017, a little shaken from the fact that I didn't quite do what I thought I was going to do. So I gave another talk where I shared this battle of my own introspection over the state of the world, the state of my mind, and I was having trouble finding the right balance. So I shared this talk titled, Release Your Cows, coming from an anecdote shared by Titnat Han. So here's that Dharma talk from July of 2017. The very basics of Buddhism are the Four Noble Truths. It is said that these four truths are referred to as noble because they liberate us from suffering. You know, I have always preferred looking at the word noble from the perspective David Brazier shares. My remembrance is that he uses noble as a reference to our own nobility in facing our own human journey, our own human beingness, which is a journey characterized by dissatisfaction and a journey characterized by making sure dissatisfaction doesn't turn to suffering. And in doing that, we are the noble ones. As we know, the first noble truth is that the un unenlightened life is suffering, but the better word or translation of that word dukkha is an unsatisfactory. Life always involves suffering, either painful physical or emotional suffering. But it doesn't have to be suffering just by telling our stories over and over again. It can be just unsatisfactory. It becomes suffering when we can't release from it. And then the second noble truth is the cause of the is the cause of the suffering. It's about our craving. Like we cannot release from this sense that things aren't right. There's this craving, attachment, or grasping. You know, we want something and we want to keep it and grab it. We don't want something, we push it away or run from it. Either way, we're attached. Salama Yeshi said, attachment is where the mind sticks. And this stems from an ignorance of what the nature of reality, the, the nature of what really makes us happy. The third noble truth is that it is possible to end this dissatisfaction extinguishing this sense of dissatisfaction and difficulty. And this is the freedom or liberation that's referred to in the path of the Dharma in Buddhism. 
And the fourth noble truth is the active companion of the third. And that is that the path to getting over this or extinguish this sense of dis- feeling of constant dissatisfaction is outlined in the Buddha's Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is the practice to achieve happiness for yourself and others. So my Dharma glimpse in July there focused on the second noble truth. I wrote about attachment, grasping, keeping forever the things that we think will make us happy or continually focus on what makes us unhappy. That's the second noble truth. It's that grasping on. It's about the constant battle to recognize that we are grasping at something, that our mind is stuck on something, and then identifying what it is we're stuck on. A a sort of a gradual realization that what we're stuck on or what we're grasping is not really making us happy at all, but making us miserable. So in July, I shared a bit of my own personal journey through grasping at loss. I wrote that it was a grasping that caused underlying frustration, anger, judgment, reactivity as I was dealing with a series of losses that happened in my life over about six years. It seemed like it was a pattern for me and my mind tended to relive and focus on the story of each one. Dealing with is an accurate characterization but not quite true because the thesaurus says to deal with is about coping or managing, or taking care of, sorting out, contending with. And there was the rub for me. It was about recognizing that we are attaching to unhealthy states of mind. Attachment, though, is insidious. I realized I may have been contending or coping, but I certainly wasn't sorting out or taking care of. I was still grasping. Not until one sleepless night in mid-March 2017 when a whole lot of sorting out started happening happening at my usual 3 a.m. witching hour. You know, that time where things in your life, past, current, and future, kind of taunt you, haunt you. So that night, I opened my Kindle to read and my eyes fell on Titnat Han's book, No Mud, No Lotus. The Art of Transforming Transforming Suffering. You know, I had read the book before, but didn't have a strong memory of it. But it called to me that, that night, that early morning, like a bodhisattva emerging from the darkness to help me wrestle with the devil, or Mara, as they say. From the minute I began reading the book again, it had a significant influence propelling a Dharma leap Up until that moment, I had been operating in my own ignorant cushion of understanding about true acceptance, repeating and believing that I was in fact living Reverend Gilmay and Reverend Koyo Kabose's teachings that acceptance is transcendence. I really believed that I had accepted and I therefore had transcended these series of losses. I had even given previous Dharma glimpse, like the one I just read you, um, about coming to that realization. And maybe I was. Maybe I was slowly climbing a circular staircase of active acceptance that was sort of like one step forward, two steps back. But it was Titnat Han's teaching that helped me to see I really wasn't digging deep enough into those series of losses because I wasn't digging deep because I didn't have the guts to really go there. I hadn't embraced the hurt of the losses, nor stayed with that embrace until the discomfort went away through release or true acceptance. Instead, I was dealing with it by attaching to it. This pattern of loss became a faint rhythm, an underlying backbeat of a story I was attaching to. Titnat Han stresses that the nirvana or the liberation part of the dukkha, the, 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 the freedom part of the suffering in our lives, reveals itself only if we throw ourselves deep into that suffering, go deep into the dukkha, pushing our Buddha nature lotus roots deep into the mud. He writes, quote, but we must remember that suffering is a kind of mud that we need in order to generate joy and happiness. Without suffering, there's no happiness. 
So we shouldn't discriminate against the mud. We have to learn how to embrace and cradle our own suffering and the suffering of the world with a lot of tenderness. Wow, the whole tenderness of our own suffering business was a completely foreign concept to me. It was a completely foreign way of dealing with suffering. I had more of a stiff upper lip sort of go-to attitude in times of trouble. I was stiff in dealing with dukkha, stiff in dealing with suffering. And like a brittle tree in the wind, I was breaking. In dealing with a series of eight losses of people and associations in my life over the last six years, I became stiff. And that stiffness itself is a symptom of the very attachment we're trying to disassociate from. I was very far from tender. Titnat Han pinpoints how our suffering thrives. He writes, it thrives because we enable it and feed it. We ruminate on suffering. We ruminate on regret and sorrow. We chew on them, swallow them, and then bring them back up, unquote. You know, like the farmer whose cows ran away in the story Titnat Han tells in that book, friends, family, and associations in my life seemed to run away. And each time I didn't understand why. The story, as Titnat Han tells it, the story of the farmer and the cows goes like this, quote, One day the Buddha was sitting with some of his monks in the woods. They had just come back from an alms round and were ready to share a mindful lunch together. A farmer passed by looking distraught. He asked the Buddha, Monks, have you seen some cows go by here? What cows? The Buddha responded. Well, the man said, I have four cows and I don't know why, but this morning they all ran away. I also have two acres of sesame. And this year the insects ate the entire crop. I've lost everything, my harvest, my cows. I feel like killing myself. The Buddha said, Dear friend, we have been sitting here almost an hour and we have not seen any cows passing by. Maybe you should go and look in the other direction. When the farmer was gone, the Buddha looked at his friends and smiled knowingly. Dear friends, you are very lucky, he said. You don't have any cows to lose. In an instant, on reading that story, I understood a lot more about my own attachment and the nature of attachment in general. Titnat Han explains that one of our biggest quote-unquote cows is that we have a narrow idea of happiness, and we, be, we suffer because of that idea. He says, quote, you continue to suffer until one day you are capable of releasing the idea, and right away you feel happy. Every one of us has an idea of happiness that can become too entrenched, too rigid. Every one of us has cows to be released, unquote. You know, in my case, and my response to what I perceived to be this pattern of losses in my life, I was rigid around continually and continuing to revisit each one, and like the farmer, trying to find the reason for it, continually saying, I don't know why but they all ran away. I felt that farmer's despair. You know, when your cows run away on their own volition, there's nothing you can do to get them back. You are face to face with your complete lack of control over other people. And isn't that the major dread in life? Losing control, not getting what you want, and losing what you have? Yet, that's the very nature of the impermanence and interdependence of life. I knew all that, right? All about impermanence and interdependency. I gave Dharma talks on it. I knew it. But you know, attachment is insidious. Even knowing in our minds, we continue, or I did, I continued to revisit this shock, this disbelief, this anger, and it fed on itself. I continue kept saying, I don't know why, but my cows ran away. And yet, I got over it, I thought. I got over the loss of each of the cows by burying my feelings. Each time, each cow, I buried my feelings until the anger and resentment bubbled up and over 
after the election in November 2016. Titnat Han wrote in this book, quote, the main affliction of our modern civilization is, is that we don't know how to handle the suffering inside us, and so we try to cover it up with all kinds of consumption. Retails peddle a plethora of classic and novel devices to help us cover up the suffering inside. But unless and until we are able to face our suffering, we can't be present and available to life, and happiness will continue to elude us, unquote. Yes, all our toys, right? All our smartphones, our computers, our, you know, our, our binge watching of Netflix. Indeed, that's how we do. We cover it up. We don't even, we lose in touch with our own suffering. You know, the last of my eight losses was not so much personal, but more of what I would consider the worldly loss when Trump became president of the United States. You know, I don't wish to make this glimpse political, but this was a major perceived loss on my part and on the part of many. And it was one that I was attached to and became addicted to thanks to my devices, allowing me to find a comfortable network of people raging with me on social media. It was like my bottled emotional response to the series of my personal losses was finally able to discharge when the country and the world responded to the results of the election in shock, disbelief, and anger. But thanks to Titnat Han, who triggered a digging deep into the mud, I came to realize that in many ways, my clinging to the anger, rage, and resistance against Trump and his, and his administration was how I hid from some of the more personal and pa painful losses I experienced. And in that digging, I realized just as Titnat Han taught, quote, you will continue to suffer until one day you are capable of releasing the idea and right away you feel happy. Every one of us has an idea of happiness, and that can become too entrenched, too rigid. Every one of us has cows to be released. You know, I suddenly felt a freedom over all those losses. Not just a freedom from suffering over the losses, but a freedom from the loss of those people and freedom from the associations themselves. No, I didn't initiate the release of the cows, so they seemed like losses to me. But they were actually releases. A release I didn't realize until I started relaxing into the mud. These releases that created these releases created an uninvited freedom, a bringing of sense of a bringing of a sense of peace, of a sense of happiness. On that day in mid-March, in reading that book at three o'clock in the morning, when I woke up in the morning, I took a vow to disengage from social media for 21 days. I wanted to disengage from that group think of rage. I took a vow to disengage from the anger, judgment, and reaction that the social media and the news offers continuously and that kept me clinging to the fact that I was suffering. And the peace that came from my vow stretched beyond those 21 days. And when I wrote this Dharma Glimpse, I'm interjecting now, in July of 2017, I wrote, I am still disengaging from political and other angry, judgmental, reactionary discourse on social media. And I will say it's still going on today, in September of 2018. I read more books now. I read the books that piled up around me while I was engaged in social media. I treated myself and those around me a little more tenderly. I started to notice the world that was right in front of me again. Titnat Han teaches that we can make peace with our suffering by, quote, coming home to ourselves, unquote. He says, it requires that we make peace with our suffering, treating it tenderly, and looking deeply at the roots of our pain. It requires that we let go of useless, unnecessary sufferings, in other words, release the second arrow, and take a closer look at our idea of happiness. Finally, it requires that we nourish happiness daily with acknowledgement, understanding, 
and compassion for ourselves and those around us, unquote. Titnat Han says that letting go takes a lot of courage. That is our nobility that is inherent in the noble truths. The nobility is the courage to let go. But once we let go, happiness comes very quickly. You don't have to search for it because it's always right there. I release the cow of anger over life doing what life does. <laughs> it separates us from people and things. Friends and circumstances fall away. It's natural. It's the truth of impermanence. I let it all go. In its place, I came up with four agreements to keep me aligned with my intention. Borrowing from the phrase, the four agreements from Don Miguel Ruiz's book, The Four Agreements, my four agreements were this. One, it's not about me. So in other words, don't take it personally. Two, you can't control everything. Three, you can't change other people. And four, just be kind. Release your cows is a practice I will always keep. Maybe it can help you too. Titnat Han suggests that we take a piece of paper and write a list of our cows, the things that we are attaching to, either the things we think we need to be happy or the, th the things we think are making us unhappy. Maybe you could release one each week. It might take months or a year or more, but each release brings more joy. So that was the end of my Ju July 2017 Dharma talk. This sort of shows the full circle of thoughts I've had around resisting, protesting, this sort of grasping at uh, socially acceptable anger. It's something I call what's so righteous about righteous anger, right? I realize that I haven't directly addressed advocacy. I haven't directly addressed protest or I haven't directly addressed resistance in this talk today. Instead, I talked about introspection, mindfulness, and a checking of intent. You know that Capital One commercial, what's in your wallet? I tend to use that tone when I'm asking myself, what's in your mind? Does my urge for speech or action come from an intention of anger or an intention of peace? Am I reacting or acting? Can I help create peace? equality, and justice through a motivation of anxiety, anger, and divisiveness? I don't think so. Yes, we may be talking about things in our country and in the world that need fixing, but if we come to the proposed solution as broken selves, how can we help? Are there other ways to help that come from a peaceful focus on solutions? Can we bring our own peace to the unrest? In the book, Time to Stand Up and Engage Buddhist Manifesto for Our Earth by Thanissara, she writes, quote, If we pre prematurely condemn or repress anger, which is part of our natural warning system, because we think it is unworthy to feel as a Buddhist, then we will likely either project it onto others, judging them, or collapse in overwhelm and depression. The fullness of its embodied energy will not be available to us. However, anger, when not transmuted through mindful investigation, festers. It becomes hatred. The Buddha taught, hatred is never overcome by hatred. Only by love is hatred overcome. This is the timeless truth. The path of compassion is a challenging one, she writes. We learn it not through idealization, but through having our ideals burnt to ash by the challenge of meeting the world. We have a choice, she says. We can keep generating suffering, splitting the world into us and them, and perpetuating the illusion of ownership and dominance, or we can choose to live our interconnectedness as fully as we can. In doing so, we enter the practice, as Mahatma, Gandhi says, Mahatma Gandhi says, of being the change we want to see in this world. You know, I offer these thoughts of mine for your reflection. However, and whatever you choose to do in any activism, protesting, or resisting, remember to do some good. 
and check to see where your mind is. Are you being the peace or are you being part of the inherent problem? That's it for today's episode, today's long episode. Thank you for joining me. I hope you stay with it, even if you have to listen to it in two parts. Thanks to everyone who donated and commented on my podcast over the past weeks. I always try to reach out with a private email of thanks, but be patient. The numbers are growing. It may take me a little time to get in touch. But this doesn't mean I don't appreciate you. I do appreciate each and every one of you. You are my everyday Buddhism heroes. As always, if you like this podcast, please consider supporting my work through a recurring or one-time donation on my Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash everyday Buddhism. And until next time, keep making your... Every day's better. <laughs>